Welcome back, everyone, to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. Today, we've got a very special episode for you. Surprise. We are doing a sneak peek at what the highly anticipated phase four of Seaweed Brain will look like. We are talking all about the new Disney Plus show. That's right. Today, we are revisiting The Lightning Thief with a brand new special guest to talk about plot, predictions, casting, pop punk music, and more. We are finally self-actualizing on this podcast. So stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Carter never actually reads the script I write out. They usually just riff <laughs> on what they generally think is going to happen. But that was really well done, Carter. Um, I, I do know how to read. I've been relearning how to read. That was great, yeah. Are we talking pop punk music? Is that a thing? <laughs> I think we're going to have to. Okay, because I, I love my pop punk. Like, it's my <laughs> go-to genre. That is the voice of our lovely special guest today. So everybody say hi to Liam. Hi, Liam. Oh, hey, everyone. It's an <laughs> honor to be on this show. I, this is a long time in the making. I'm very excited. Liam, can you tell the people who you are, where they would know you from, perhaps the comment sections on Percy Jackson Twitter, other such places? What are you doing here? Yeah, so it's funny that you say that because when you first reached out, that's when I started like making my way onto Percy Jackson Twitter, if you will, yes. PJO Twitter. <laughs> and PJO Twitter. a lot of people, this was like before you could buy a check mark, and a lot of people were like, who is Liam T. Crowley? And I found that the, the <laughs> that most was me. hilarious That was a thing, lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I don't use my middle initial professionally. That was just the only username I could get. Oh, okay. So everyone referring to me in this new name was just so strange. And I was like, you know what? This is this is hilarious. I'm just going to keep the mystery going, even though it clearly says in my bio that I'm a entertainment reporter for comicbook.com. Um, but that's what I do. Uh, I'm an entertainment reporter. Uh, I cover a lot of different things to keep it general. It's film, TV and professional wrestling. But, uh, within those areas, there are kind of like specific avenues that I put a lot of attention into. Uh, and one of those specific avenues, the reason why we're here today, uh, is Percy Jackson. Like I've been covering this show and production kicked off last June when Walker was cast. I made a little YouTube video about that before I was exclusive to one place. And yeah, it's just been a, a roller coaster ride since. And it's crazy because we haven't even seen an episode yet. And I feel like we've all lived such like an extensive <laughs> lifetime with these actors and casting news and everything in between. Yeah, it has been a long time. I remember when the first news of it dropped and we were like, we're never going to make it to 2023. And now it's 2023. And I'm like, oh, you can push it two more years. Like I got some weight left in me. If you need to finesse the CGI until 2025, I want it to be perfect so I can wait. Liam, I also have to say, like, before we talk about anything, can you please tell us about how you talked to Logan Lerman? Like, a fortnight ago. Yeah, that was the craziest thing because it also happened like mid-December and I had to keep it secret. And so I told like a couple people. I told my my mom. Uh, I told, <laughs> I think I only told my mom. Was your mom excited or was your mom like, who is that? My mom was very excited because she has a very distinct memory of taking me to the first Percy Jackson movie <gasps> and me being irate at the fact that Annabeth wasn't blonde. 
And I was like, yep. I don't remember that. I just remember being like so happy that the Lotus Casino scene happened in live action. So that was special. <laughs> but I, I didn't tell anyone because I was just, I was afraid it was going to fall through. Like, I'm, I don't want to tell about it in advance. But it was a very special interview. It was one that I like, I admit, like I, I did some like meditation beforehand because I was like, I need to like quell <laughs> any nerves. I, I don't want to stumble on my words. Like, I want this to be perfect. Uh, I pulled an all-nighter before to like catch up on his show and make sure my questions were fully fine-tuned. And in like a moment of pure poetic justice or what's it called? A full circle moment. That's what I meant to say. Uh, right before the interview, like an hour before, I was like, I feel like I remember holding on to the ticket stub from 2010. <gasps> and I I remember being like a nerd about it because my family, like, you know, it, the movie didn't come out around my birthday so that we wouldn't get like toys for it or anything. It was like, if you're going to get any merchandise, it's going to be very minimal. And there was like a trading card that came in a pack of airheads and I cherished that trading card and I kept it in a little baseball card holder and I kept that with my baseball card like collection, put the ticket stub in the back and I was like, maybe I still have that box. I found the box, found the card, found the ticket stub. I got to show it to Logan during the interview and that was like the coolest moment of my entire life. And then the interview went live on January 2nd, I want to say. And the response was just like phenomenal. It's it's why I do what I do. Like the amount of prep work that went into it, sure, it was a lot, but like it is all worth it for how people responded to that. The answers he gave too, I was so shocked. I thought he was going to be like, I don't want to talk Percy Jackson, but he was very genuine. He was very kind. He gave some very nice advice to Walker about just like, enjoy it while you're in it. I'm sure production is long and extensive, you know, eight straight months of work, but like you're doing something really cool near the face of an iconic character for a new generation, like soak that in. It's the coolest moment of my life. I am so shook. I was shook before you told that story. And now I'm more shook because I'm realizing that I'm talking to you and you were just talking to Logan Lerman. And that makes my Kevin Bacon, Logan Lerman number one. Yeah, yeah, we're one degree separate. I mean, you're cool on your own, Liam. We would have been here regardless. <laughs> we didn't know you had talked to Logan Lerman when we asked you to be here, but this is just very extra cool. That freaking rocks. Okay, you guys all know now why Liam is here. Now we can talk about why we're all here. Um, we have been threatening, <laughs> we being Carter and I, since we started this podcast, that the reason we started this podcast was to talk about the Percy Jackson show because sure, we read books sometimes, but what we really care about- Erica reads books sometimes. Carter, I got Carter to read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, though. So that was a big accomplishment. I read like, yeah, several books, all Erica recommendations. I'm going to try reading again, but... The real reason we're here <laughs> is to talk about the television show because books are fun, but what we care about more than anything in the entire world is television. And when the PJO television show was announced, we flipped our shit and that's when we decided to start a podcast. So it is quite a ways away still from when we think the show <laughs> will actually be dropping in 2024. Right, Liam? I expect it to be first quarter of 2024. Yeah, so we're about a year away, exactly. But we just couldn't wait to start talking about it. And also we got in contact with Liam and like I grossly underestimated how long it would take us to get through the trials of Apollo. So I anticipated <laughs> we would be done by now, but we aren't. So we're going to release this episode as a sneak peek at what the next phase of the show is that we've been threatening for a very long time, which is pre the show airing, we are revisiting The Lightning Thief in eight episodes for the eight episodes of the TV show, doing our own predictions as to what we think will go down on each episode, what we would like to see, talk about casting, music, talk about all the creative people who are involved, the people who haven't yet been announced. And 
really just have a good film bro time with it. Does that sound good, everybody? <laughs> that sounds phenomenal. If you're listening to this episode, you can say yes out loud wherever you are. <laughs> so we got a little bit of your PJO origin story, Liam. Do you have any like really strong godly parent thoughts for yourself? Do you have like a monster that you identify with, a titan, <laughs> anything goes a specific dryad. <laughs> yeah, Apollo, I'd, I'd probably cement as the godly parent. I, I can't really give you a, a specific reason as to why, because it's been a minute since I've taken the quiz, but I love music. So there's that. <laughs> and beyond that, yeah, I gave you a little bit of the, the Percy Jackson origin story for me. It was like my first franchise is, is what I like to say. Like Marvel got <laughs> me into film, you know, directors I love, Tarantino, Scorsese got me into like the, the art type of cinema. But before all of that, it was Percy Jackson. I, I read the books. I want to say I read The Lightning Thief when I was in like second or third grade. And I was just like obsessed with it. I, I know that I was reading the books before Last Olympian came out. Because when I had to get Last Olympian, mom wasn't too happy that it had to be a hardcover because it was brand new. <laughs> That's the one hardcover we both have yep. as well. <laughs> yeah, I was always a fan. But when there was nothing new coming out, like Heroes of Olympus, I read like the first two books when they came out. Reading became uncool in middle school and high school. And I unfortunately so just true. like joined that terrible side. Reading is for losers. <laughs> the pandemic hit and I reread the original series, finished Heroes of Olympus. And then he announced the show. And I was like, this is a great time to like really dial up the fandom. And it just kind of all came naturally because it was like, you know, it was resurrecting positive, nostalgic memories of my childhood. And like now we're in a world where like I cover a live action show for work about it. And it's like really, really cool. That is so cool. It is kind of crazy how the pandemic was like a huge deal for the Percy Jackson fandom. It was crazy. Now that we're a little bit out of 2020, like a we have a little bit of distance on it. We can really look back and be like, wow, that really revitalized. Everything lined up. <laughs> Every single person from age 20 to 30 yeah. got back into Percy Jackson during the summer of 2020. I'll never forget because the announcement video was in like April. It was like a month in, like everything was so desolate. And like Becky and Rick just hop on Instagram. They're like, we have some exciting news. Like, guess what? <laughs> like there's light at the end of this tunnel. And, and that light leads to Camp Affleck. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it really was the announcement. Everyone being home. Um, JK Rowling speaking, everything <laughs> aligned. My like childhood bookshelf is like at the foot of my bed and I was just sitting alone in my bedroom, like so <laughs> depressed, having been sent home from college, staring at the Percy Jackson books and everybody in the exact same moment around the world, we all were staring at our Percy Jackson books and we're like, well, time to get this going. And now here we are. What a beautiful communal experience we've all had. Okay, one more question for you, Liam, and then we can talk about not just Liam's life. So that would be fun too. Since we're revisiting The Lightning Thief, this is an original question we used to ask everyone who was guesting on our show. When you read the books the first time as a kid in elementary school, how did you pronounce the name of Percy Jackson's centaur mentor? I believe it was Chiron from, from the get-go. Fine. I, That's fine. I think. That's fine. Okay. I, I cannot no hard confirm feelings. that, but... I when I was reading this question, I was like, Chirin? That just I don't even think I would like that just sounds like it would be a double E instead of the I. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So you were just smart from a young age. You were just you were just sounding things out. You were using you were using context clues. One I can confirm I pronounced wrong was was Luke's last name. I would say uh Castellian. That's fine. 
That's giving kind of Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little Star Wars. And how is it? How are you supposed to say it? Uh, I think it's just Castellan. I have definitely always said Castellan. We're, we're not going to find out till season four, I think. <laughs> that was a whole big deal, right? Like that they don't right, say his last name. Right, never said his last name. Yeah. yeah. Literally today, I met a real life person whose last name is Riordan. And I walked up to them and I was like, so, any relation? And he was like, no. <laughs> Um, but one time I met Rick Riordan at a book fair and me and my brother like confronted him and we were like, do you think we're related? And Rick was like, no, (laughs) but he also said that he pronounces it Riordan. Yeah. Um, Not to get into that, which nobody has enough time to discuss. Okay. It's time to actually talk about why we're here today. We're going to cover, let's say the basics of what we know about the show as of right now. We know it's probably coming first quarter 2024. Thank you for the fact check, Liam. We've seen the teaser. That was huge. We did cover it on the podcast. Pause right now and go watch the teaser and then come back or go listen to our 30 minute episode about the teaser. About the teaser, which is... And then come back here. A minute long? 30 seconds? <laughs> Some, like 50 something seconds. There was a lot to talk about. It gave us so much There was info. a lot to say. Oh yeah. The pilot is being directed by James... Oh no, me not knowing how to pronounce white last names. Bobbin, Bobbin. I think it's Bobbin. James Bobbin, who we have mentioned many times, directed the Mysterious Medic Society for Disney+, Plus, which is like, I would say the most important thing on his resume when we are thinking about how PJO is going to like look and feel, at least the pilot episode. Guys, also, if you haven't watched season two of Mysterious Benedict Society, it slapped so hard. The show is so good. And I think as of now, it hasn't been renewed yet for a third season. So do please support them. He also is famous for directing a bunch of the Muppet movies. Um, He did the like Alice with the Looking Glass, that sequel movie. The lead writers slash the exec producers are Rick and then Jonathan E. Steinberg. And also a lot of the writers on his previous shows are working on this as well. Other writers, Monica Owusu-Breen, who's from Lost, Daphne Olive, um, Stuart Strandberg, Zoe Neary, Joe Trax, who famously wrote the book for the Lightning Thief musical and is already well-known and well-beloved by the fandom. I think we need to insert a quick explanatory comma for people without um, BFAs. Um, the book refers to the the, the script, the um, spoken dialogue of the musical. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Joe also wrote Be More Chill, which is also a fantastically delightful musical. He wrote the book for that. And also Dash and Lily, which I haven't seen yet wow. because I cannot mentally put myself in that space. But Erica, I've heard Dash and Lily, I- that's like... <laughs> Me? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it. I would never say that. But like, um, that's like, if you're talking content with... Well, okay, Dash and Lily relevantly stars, what's his name? Troy Iwata. Yeah, Troy Iwata, who was also in Be More Chill. Right, he was also in Be More Chill. Wow. Threads. Threads. Be More Chill, which also starred... George Salazar, who was oh, also... Oh, yes, also George Salazar. Who are you talking about? I was talking about Stephanie. Stephanie Shu. Yeah, Stephanie. Stephanie Shu, George Taylor. Be More Chill was awesome. Okay. <laughs> Xavier Styles, also a writer. The showrunners are Steinberg and Dan Schatz, who worked on C, my favorite TV show from <laughs> Apple TV. Shout out to C. Erica, you have to give a 30 second pitch for C. The show is me. Liam, have you dabbled in C on Apple TV starring Jason Momoa <laughs> featuring Dave Bautista and Joshua Henry? There, It's a great cast. It's insane. I haven't yet. And Apple TV, like, they only produce bangers, too. Like, Severance, Ted Lasso, Morning Show. Like, it's it's on my Dickinson. list. Dickinson. <laughs> I haven't seen Dickinson. They only produce high-budget, obsessively detailed bangers yeah. with very expensive um, soundtrack budgets. Quality over quantity over there at Apple. That's your new homework, is to dabble in C 
on Apple TV. Love it. <laughs> you got to turn your brightness all the way up for it, though. Warning now. It's a dark show. Fair. Okay, production design. This is important. Dan Henna, notably the, I want to say, art director for Lord of the Rings and also King Kong. But Lord of the Rings is more important. This is a huge deal. This was like probably one of the Next to like Lin-Manuel Miranda as Hermes, I would say one of the biggest announcements we've gotten thus far. It's the unsung heroes. Yeah. The behind the scenes talent. They're huge. Those were Oscar winning films. Yeah. The fact that <laughs> this man knows how to adapt the lore of a book, you know, like from page to screen. And, and 20 years ago, mind you, like before the technology evolved. That's such a good point. Cinematography Pierre Gill, who worked on Dune recently. The art direction is a bunch of names I'm just going to rattle off. Chris Beach, Devin Gray, Ray Garriak, Chris Humphreys, costume design, Tish Monahan. Set design is by Jonathan Allen Abbott, who worked on The Adam Project, which was also Walker's movie. Wait, I'm sorry. The last art direction name is not Chris Humphreys. It oh, is it's Craig, Craig Humphreys. Humphreys. Craig Humphreys. <laughs> Chris Humphreys being... Kim Kardashian. Ex-husband. <laughs> yeah, the former Boston Celtic who dated a Kardashian. Not me being subtly up to date on my Kardashians lore, um, subconsciously. Um, this was all just information for anybody who doesn't pay $10.99 a month for an IMDb Pro account. That was for you. I'm here for you to supply you with the information. Let's talk what we think the plot of this first episode will be. Roughly what chapters are we covering here, Carter? In our opinion. Okay. We're looking at chapters one through four. So this, in the book, you'll remember, includes the museum. It includes Return Home. It includes the journey over to Montauk and from Montauk to Camp Half-Blood and the confrontation with the Minotaur. Yes. So let's talk TV structure. There are obviously no rules when it comes to making a 55-minute episode we confirmed that they're hour long too didn't we I, I think they'll range it's eight episodes but like disney plus all the marvel shows range from like as short as like 39 to as long yeah. as like 55 so i think i think it'll vary i don't think they'll all be strictly one runtime yeah. yeah so somewhere from 39 to 55 again there aren't any specific rules we don't know exactly what will happen but this is all about our own egotistical predictions so <laughs> what if we say there starts with a teaser scene and then we have four acts. Let's discuss what we think is going to go down in our own opinion from teaser through act one through act four. Teaser scene. Carter, what do you want there? Okay, I have a different opinion from what was listed here. I think we should list mm -hmm. both of them. I, I am okay. a little ambivalent about that. My first assumption is that we would do something that is really in line with my personal vision for what I've always thought the Percy Jackson story should begin with, which is... An early 2000s, late 90s style montage where we see the credits, there's a pop punk song rolling. And as gradually we start to hear, like uh, the montage, by the way, of course, is Percy getting kicked out of various schools as a younger person for having crazy stuff go down on field trips. So this is the montage that's playing. We hear the pop punk stuff going, the credits rolling for the people, and maybe we also get the uh, voiceover again where Percy is warning us that this life is dangerous, unpleasant, etc. That is my vision. Erica has a different vision that I think also makes sense. <laughs> that feels very 90s anime, Carter. Like when you described that, I was seeing like animation in my head, like of all of the scenes and like to the music and it's like kind of timed out. Hey, that is also a very lovely vision. I could see that. I could see us having soft shots of all the members of the cast. Yeah. You know, yeah. 
Um, Liam, do you have strong feelings about an opening teaser scene? Well, I love the montage idea. Like that's something I never even considered. I've read Lightning Thief so many times and I feel like that first page, the look, I didn't ask to be a half-blood, I didn't want to be a half-blood, like that's read so ominously and like almost void of sound. I love the idea of like some upbeat like drums and guitar. And he's like, look, I didn't want to be a half-blood. Like a little like- Like the like, musical. Yeah, like, like, a, like a decom movie almost. I dig that vibe. The idea specifically of a montage of him getting kicked out of various schools because I've just freshly reread the chapters. Uh, the the man with like the dark hat, he's like a cyclops under there, mm-hmm. the snake going after him and he's like a young kid and he like strangled it already. Things like that, I think would just like catch up to speed really quick. I, I think like that's how you, you know, cover a lot of ground in like 30 seconds. I think that's great. Oh my God. We, we used to say before Becky was like, the series is set here and now, and it, it is not a period piece. We used to talk a lot about how we wanted it to be a period piece and to be set in 2006. And then it would have made so much sense to have it be like a decom vibe because <laughs> it would have added to the, the early 2000s of it all. The period um, piece of it all. Yeah. <laughs> like I can, I can even hear like, you know, Percy, you're late. And he's like getting his backpack. He's like, the school bell the rings school already. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Toast in the mouth as exiting. Yeah. Montage yeah. <laughs> of Sally giving him his lunch every time he goes on his new first day of school. Whoa. <laughs> Gabe getting like meaner and meaner, smellier like two, and smellier. Two blue waffles like come out of the, the toaster and all Whoa. that. Or two Stop pieces of toast it. that are blue, like something silly like that. Wow. See, thinking. We're actually putting this all out there so that Rick can call us for reshoots for any changes that need to be made. <laughs> I've always wanted an opening sort of like teaser. You know how in the movie it's like two tall white men walking out of the ocean and like showing up at the Empire State Building? I like the ominousness of that because the lightning thief itself, it's spooky and the whole thing is very rainy and dark and wet and blue. But I thought it'd be fun to open up on Sally at Montauk, staring into the ocean like young Sally and like dancing with, you know, like a man you can't quite see, like somebody tall with a beard and you just kind of see them falling in love and like sort of like a little montage of them and they're like summer of love. And then a hard lightning strike and him walking down into the ocean and like disappearing into the darkness. And then we open up on the monologue or we open up on credits to the monologue or something. I do see the vision. Yeah. Act one. The museum, right? Yes. The book, the action, it begins at the museum and it is where we absolutely, I don't think there's any question about this. That's where we're going to begin. The scene in the book opens with, I think, a little bit more than is maybe strictly necessary and which we're already veering off into, you know, opinion territory. Like, (laughs) it felt very reminiscent of what was, I think strongly the genre convention of the time which is that like you would need to have a lot of foreshadowing in order to establish a the relationship with like a kindly old mentor who knows all these things and b to get people primed to think about greek mythology because you might be picking up this book and not understand what was going on or you might really not have heard the story of chronos eating his kids i feel like neither of these restrictions necessarily applies to like a 2024 audience in really the same way. So it would make sense to really focus on the emotional meat of the scene, which is to say Percy's friendship with Grover and then confrontation with Mrs. Dodds played by Megan Megan Mullally. Mullally. She's going to eat so hard. Thoughts on 
thoughts on the museum on the first act? I dig it. And the big reason for it is because this is like a huge opportunity to sprinkle in like so many Easter eggs. Like I don't want it to be overwhelming, but like a big thing I want from this series is like when they're in California, like I want to see a purple shirt in the distance. Like when they're in the Lotus Casino, like I want to see just the back of Nico's head, like for eagle-eyed mm-hmm. fans to be like, oh my 100%. God, like that way you don't have to attach a face to a character just yet. But just to like emphasize they're out there, like there's a whole universe here. I think the museum is like a perfect place to like scatter just little nuances that could be seeds that you sprout for later or they just never get touched. But just like reasons for the hardcore fans who who know this book inside and out to go like frame by frame and go like, oh, my God, I think that might be alluding to something down the line. So uh, I want to spend some time in the museum, but I also it's like I understand we got to move past it to get to the real meat of the story, which is everything that goes down to Camp Half-Blood. Right. They could maybe give a little White Lotus season two where we have these still shots of various sculptures of figures who are going to be important in the yes. coming season as like yes. statues in the Met. Carter, you I'm assuming you wrote this and you didn't say it, so I'm just going to read it out loud. Carter wrote, you only get one chance to define Percy pre-demigod among his peers. So I think it would be good to frame him as a nice kid, but also kind of a loser. So you understand both that he's protecting Grover, but also that it makes sense for him not to have friends. Um, this is something we talked about a lot when we first talked about The Lightning Thief was Percy being an outsider, and that needs to feel very palpable, um, which is something you forget throughout the series, that he's like not cool because he's so cool at Camp Half-Blood, but he grew up like <laughs> not cool at all and like a loser. Like His only friend was Grover, who was like weird and loved enchiladas. <laughs> And you believe it. The experience of rereading that first chapter feels strange because the voice is actually a little different. It contains all the parts of the voice later on, and there is a very clear, consistent, believable through line from one to the other. But the voice has these hints of more sourness, more um, discontent and confusion in a way where like, this is kind of along some axes as angsty as Percy gets because he really does not see the vision for what is going on in his life and why he is on this field trip, why anything matters. You know, like, um, and like the language specifically that he uses about Nancy is stuff where you're like, I kind of agree with you. Like Nancy is very intolerable, but also it's like mean. It's really like a little bit scary. And I think that you should read this and be like, this is a kid who is like a little bit strange, like a little bit has like capabilities and strengths that like no one, including the kid actually understands. And I think that having a good set of scenes with the other kids at the school has the potential to be like a very efficient, effective way of establishing all those things without having, I don't know, like Grover have a lot of dialogue about how Percy doesn't have any other friends or something, you know? Um, We also know, I forgot to mention, we do know that this museum scene, or I guess we don't technically know they're going to be at the museum, but we know that Nancy Boba Fett has been cast as well as two young girls who are Nancy's friends. So we can be pretty confident that we're going to juxtapose Percy against normal 12 year old peers and Megan Mullally will eat as Mrs. Dodds. And I do hope that Walker gets to say, this is a pen at some point. History. That's my favorite line from the movie. It's like, oh. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if anyone remembers the trailer for the movie, but the trailer for the movie is 50% shots of Logan Lerman saying, this is a pen, as though that's like the only joke that's going to be in the movie. It's very 2000s-y too. It's like, this summer, 
Greek gods are real. And like little things like that. It's just like, <laughs> oh my God. It's next level. It's so nostalgic. Act two, we're back at school. This is a part of the Lightning Thief I always forget because the movie changes this up. But after the Mrs. Dodds attack, the entire rest of the school year goes by with Grover and Chiron gaslighting Percy. And that feels important. <laughs> we need to see like six months of Percy thinking he's going insane. And if we don't get a montage in the teaser, we could get a montage of weird shit happening in the middle of the episode for the rest of the school year and him seeing mysterious people around and like things following him. I really like that. There was one thing that you just sparked in my mind though, when you said is the, this is a pen is the only joke in the first movie. I don't know if this was intended to be funny, but when they skip over the going, the whole like finish out the rest of the school year and Grover goes back with him to Percy's apartment. And then he gives the all, he's like, Percy, we got to go now, like right now. And it's just like me and my friends joke about that line. Like the way <laughs> I think Brandon, Brandon T. Jackson, the way that Brandon delivered that line, I thought was hilarious, but I do agree. <laughs> it's integral for Percy needs to get gaslit. He needs to get gaslit a lot because that's like some of the most compelling stuff of the early chapters. It's like, what do you mean Mrs. Dodds wasn't real? Like what's going on? Like what is the summer solstice and everything? Like those little tidbits is what's going to keep like new audiences the most compelled because yeah, we're all tuning into this to see our imagination lived out. <laughs> but I watched Harry Potter not knowing anything that happened in the books. And like, these are the elements that will make those new viewers like intrigued. Absolutely. Dramatic tension. Totally. Very important. Retweet. Especially, I remember that summer solstice line freaking me out as a kid. I was like, what does that mean? I was like, is this kid going to be okay? <laughs> when I found out we have those in real life, I was terrified. I was like, what do you mean? I can't go to school today. The world could end. Yeah, see, we need to scare some kids. Yeah. <laughs> we need to scare some kids. We need to have probably a scene where Kyron is not just gaslighting, but he's simultaneously gaslighting and being like, Percy... Why didn't you do better in my class? Percy, I really care yes. about you and you can do better. And like, why aren't you doing better? And Percy being even more confused and frustrated and miserable because frustrated. like, because why should he be doing better? And also this man is lying to him and we know it and everyone knows it. Having that, having the scene with Grover and Kyron, like having their um, secret discussion about continuing to gaslight Percy and Percy overhearing them and being like, what? What's all this? I thought Grover was my friend. Yeah, act two, like bleeding into act three, the Greyhound ride back to Manhattan because Yancey Academy is, I don't know, upstate in New Jersey? I don't remember. Somewhere that's not New York, so not relevant. And <laughs> they catch the Greyhound back in, just Grover and Percy because they like weren't ready to say goodbye yet at school, so Grover booked a ticket. When Percy's like, it's because he's a good friend, but Grover is obviously that's his job and gaslighting. Um, <laughs> Percy at this point is so, in the book, he's so irritated with like everybody lying to him that he ditches Grover, literally at Port Authority, he like ditches Grover and takes a taxi up to 104th and 1st, which is higher than the apartment that they later reference in Trials of Apollo. But it makes sense that Sally would move. And then Act 3, we have this section, which I also, again, always forget about, which is Percy at home with... Sally and Gabe. And Gabe. Boo. Boo, Gabe. <laughs> I hate Gabe Ugliano so much. Especially rereading these chapters, I was like, don't talk to anyone like that. Bean dip? Bro, Uber Eats, get it yourself. They sell bean dip at like every grocery store. It really. <laughs> 
we need this again. Like you said, like for kids who are experiencing this for the first time, we have to have Gabe Ugliano, a hardcore villain. You just cannot stand him. He must be portrayed as like literal like green smoke coming off of him. He smells so bad. There needs to be CG. We need visual effects for Gabe. We also need people to say his whole name out loud because I like, I literally did not put it together for many years as a child. Like I didn't even attempt to pronounce it that like, his name just it's like <laughs> ugly but it's italian like um, <laughs> like if you were to turn the english word ugly into an italian last name that's his name which like <laughs> pop culture happy hour was recently discussing the film adaptation of the musical adaptation of matilda and i think they made some very valid points about how like real children's media should make you feel like you were like drowning and being suffocated and like <laughs> smothered by the evilness of terrible terrible authority figures who have no reason to be there and hate being there. Yep. And like, Gabe is so important. Like that really, he yeah. he stands so tall as a figure in singularly terrible adult authority figures. And also mm-hmm. too, just like knowing the reason why he's around too, whenever I reread it, my heart breaks, but like, also I'm just like so proud. I'm just like, you know, all the sacrifices that are getting made. I saw this movie. Uh, I can't talk about it in detail because it hasn't come out yet, but Missing recently. Have you seen the trailer Is for it? Is that the one that's like all screen recorded? Yeah, like through like a yes. computer screen. Very cool style. And my my goldfish attention span appreciated all the, all the stimulants that's going on on screen. Cool. But in a similar way, that parent makes a lot of like sacrifices for the child that you don't understand until the very end of the film. And like seeing that movie last night compared to rereading uh, the first couple chapters today, I'm just like, damn, Sally Jackson, you unsung hero. Like give her yes. her flowers. It's admirable. Fictional moms. They, they really like, you know, do it for me. Wanda <laughs> from WandaVision. She's up there too. I think Sally Jackson, she could take over that the face of moms on Disney Plus, Sally Jackson. Make it happen. I think you going to say she could take over my town and mentally uh, <laughs> occupy me. She could take Wanda. Are you kidding? <laughs> Sally Jackson versus Wanda. Versus Wanda in a fight? Wow. <laughs> We're going to have to do another episode with Liam just to break down that what that cage map would look like. <laughs> Speaking of Sally Jackson... Now we get the drive to Montauk where Sally is like, don't worry about Gabe being like a rude asshole to you. We're going to take a special trip because you got kicked out of your school and I feel bad. And we're going to drive to Montauk, which is something we lost in the movie, obviously. The like calm before the storm. I think this scene is so important. This section of him spending time with Sally, which is why I feel strongly that'd be really cool to see Sally in the beginning of the episode or like a younger woman in the same location so that when we get back here... We're like, what is going on? Like, it is dark and mysterious and the spooky beach. As kids, Carter and I were very fixated on the idea of like a rainy, spooky beach with lots of rocks. And I was always trying to figure out where that came from and that like mental fixation. And I think it's from the lightning thief from this scene of him spending this time with his mom in like the last good moments before everything, you know, before he lost his ignorance forever. But I want to see them arrive at Montauk and I want to feel like both held and also terrified by the familiarity and the coziness of this place and the chaos that is happening the lightning and the storm and walker is soaking wet obviously in like 90 percent of his scenes he said so it will be raining (laughs) this is also in the book where prissy has his first like dream which i've been wondering about if we're gonna have those in the show or not i would love that yeah i really want this scene too but i worry that like Stuff is going to have to get cut from The Lightning Thief. Obviously, eight hours of television, 
they could do everything, but they won't. And neither should they, you know, like you want to make sure it's properly paced. And I worry that like a CGI fight between a horse and an eagle (laughs) might be out of the budget because other (laughs) stuff is so expensive. And it's like, I can just imagine Rick going to Disney and being like, no, you don't understand. It's metaphorical and it's it's really integral. And they're, and they're just like, listen, like we can live without this scene. So I don't expect it to be in it, but I do think it would be really, really cool. Considering, like you said, how important dreams are to the whole series. My my personal pitch is that they use like um, a different visual medium (laughs) for all the dreams (laughs) and that we have these like cute little, like very artsily styled, animated, not realistic interstitials for the dreams. Like it makes a lot of sense for this one where it's like a horse fighting an eagle and less sense for the other ones that are just like people talking. But I think it would or, be sickening. Or, yeah, <laughs> Grover calling out when he's dressed in a, a, in a wedding, wedding dress. dress. Like yeah. I think that is like a perfect option, like a perfect opportunity to use animation or like some other media or like very different filming style or something. But alas. I could also see Percy, not for this dream, but for the future dreams, just like clips of like Walker like tossing and turning in bed with his eyes closed and they're just being like sound bites of Grover being like, Percy, Percy. And you get like flashes maybe of images, but we're not fully watching it as though we are Percy watching the dream. Yeah. Cost effective. Which also brings up the point, we cannot get the same perspective in a movie or a TV show that we can get from reading a first person book. So the extent to which they're going to try to make the audience feel like we are watching this story through Percy's perspective is going to be interesting. Do you think they're going to do voiceover or like handheld camera? Liam, what do you think? I love a good voiceover. My favorite movie last year was The Batman. And a big reason for that was like that opening inner monologue from Robert Pattinson. So I would, oh, especially he's because- so adorable in that movie. This little eyeliner. Oh, Robert Pattinson. Yeah, he's <laughs> he's phenomenal. We know from the trailer, at least I assume that wasn't just for the trailer. The look, I didn't ask to be a half-blood, didn't want to be a half-blood. I think that kind of lays the groundwork for some voiceovers, uh, for some monologues. But yeah, it, it's it's crazy, like adapting inner thoughts to live action TV because it cuts out like a ton of filler text when you're looking at translating a book to a script. It condenses it so much more, so... Yeah, it'll it'll be intriguing to see how they how they play with that. General fans of voiceover. I mean, they're like old adage is like voiceover is lazy and you shouldn't use it. But I have to disagree. I, I think most people our age would probably disagree. Like we have the attention spans of goldfish. Like tell us what's happening. <laughs> um, and that way I'm more likely to follow what's going on because my brain is size of pea and very smooth. Okay. So we're all we're like we'll probably cut this dream sequence. So that's good. That gives us some time for act four, which is the Minotaur fight. Grover showing up um, in the book, showing up at the cabin and them getting in the car and the Minotaur chasing after them, which brings to mind the question, what is the Minotaur going to look like? It would be so cool if this was my only like casting. I was so gagged. This is my, I was thinking about like the next thing we're going to talk about is casting, right? And like, there aren't pretty much any roles in this first episode that haven't been announced yet, except for who's going to be the Minotaur. And it's probably going to be CGI'd and like, that's fine. But I thought it'd be really cool if it was Doug Jones, the iconic Doug Jones in a full like seven foot (laughs) Minotaur suit doing all of the like either motion capture or like in a real life Harry Harry suit doing everything to attack Percy. Doug Jones, you might hear in this context, he was like the fish monster from Shape of Water. That's like uh, a yeah, just gonna ask, right? yeah. He's this guy from Pan's Labyrinth with the eyeballs on his <laughs> uh, hands. Yes. He's done almost every single seven foot tall um, 
character monster in the last 25 years. Not to be confused with the senator from Alabama who served like for three years as a Democrat who also had the same name. Sure. (laughs) Not him. I don't want him to play the Minotaur. (laughs) Other thoughts about this Minotaur fight? So like growing up, I was very conditioned to be like expect low budget CGI with TV shows because I grew up on like The Flash and Green Arrow. Once upon a time. Once upon a time. Oh my <laughs> god, I haven't watched that show in so long. That's a great show. But like the Flash, for example, when they would have like similar esque monsters like King Shark or Gorilla Grodd, they'd always be shot at night because it's like that way you can mask kind of poorer CGI. Lucky for Percy Jackson, the scene already takes place at night and in the rain and in flashes of him turning back so you don't get like a really good glimpse at the thing. But I do think it will be CGI and because it is kind of a brief fight, uh, I think it'll look pretty good. And Disney Plus doesn't spare any expense. Like we see how these Marvel shows look. So I I think it'll be an impressive looking monster and it has to have a distinct look so that when he comes back in Last Olympian, we're like, oh my God, nostalgia needs to cement him himself right now. Should probably be in the diaper. (laughs) I hope so. I hope they lean into something like the zaniness. Yeah, I feel like the teaser, that was one thing that made me stressed about the teaser was how it was very serious. But then I thought about how James Bauman is directing the pilot. And I was like, this is a comedy guy. Like, it's going to be funny. These kids are funny actors and it will be a silly, goofy time designed to entertain 12-year-olds, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Any other Minotaur thoughts? Or final fight thoughts, Sally disappearing into golden mist. I think Grover is really important to the scene. Listeners may not remember that during the entire scene, Grover is passed out and yelling to be fed. And (laughs) I cannot stress enough how much that colors the experience of you reading through this scene. Because if you are like a child experiencing this, I think you really need both. Like you need to have both a strong feeling that this is a tremendous personal loss and that Percy only has really like one person in his life who really understands him and looks out for him. But like, you also need for Grover to be there. It's both comedic relief, but it also reminds you of like what the stakes are in a different way where it's not just as like Percy has like the potential for other people to care about him and to help him with things and to like protect as well. And I think Grover is like giving you all of those things with also hopefully strong comedic timing. It's going to be difficult to edit, I think, the right balance of, like, Grover's screen time against Percy dramatically fighting the Minotaur and, like, having an emotional experience and, like, feeling like he has just witnessed his mom die. But quick cuts. Quick cuts. Good audio balances. Lightning strikes. I think it's doable. I think it is doable. And you can thread such a unique tonal needle with the scene if the balance comes together. <laughs> and the red jacket. He needs to be wearing a red jacket. That's cute. <gasps> oh, red jacket. that's a good detail. I, wait, okay. I really like this at the end that instead of doing what is conceptualized of as the common way to end an episode, that you have this linking scene on Disney+. Plus. That is literally a scene, like a mini scene, as opposed to like a montage. I don't want a voiceover. I think that for this in particular, like (laughs) the idea that we see like a minute of credits and then afterwards, Annabeth, you just like hear a voice and like maybe a hazy vision of Mm -hmm. like a shadow and the line you drew in your sleep. And that's the entire promo for the next episode. That's the vision. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the vision. That is the vision. Post credit scenes are going to be big. Like, I really hope they utilize them. Because, like, it's Disney, first of all. But it's also the same energy where, like, there is a population of people who kind of know what's going to happen already, right? So, like, you don't need the same kind of thing that you would have 
for a network TV show that will play, you know, like in commercial breaks over the course of the next week. Like what you need is like something that's like delightful and sharp and tasteful more in the line of, sorry to bring it back to this, but like this is common in like anime adaptations of manga where like dedicated fans already know everything that's going to happen. And what you want to do is like remind people of like one striking visualization or like otherwise like adaptation work that is like the most emotionally resonant and like plot impactful scene, but in like some sort of abbreviated or hazy mode to like get people to be like, yes, I remember why I'm emotionally invested in the next episode as opposed to being like, like these two or three things might happen in like the first 20 minutes or something you know like in my dream world sally disappears into mist they army crawl their way over the camp half-blood line we cut to credits some kind of like beautifully orchestrated you know a la the teaser music plays over the credits and then it kind of fades out as we're done and we see this like blurry like eye-opening effect onto like you can just kind of see a ceiling you can kind of see the vague outline of leah in an orange shirt leaning over the bed like we are looking up from walker's pov and you just hear you drool in your sleep and then it cuts Fallout Boy plays last of the credits. <laughs> Episode is over. Literally. I really like that. That's really fun. Oh, another random thing. I'm curious to see what the end credit sequence looks like. That's something for the visual effects people to just conjure up from their brains. But every one of the Marvel shows has always been like, I want to watch the credits just because it's like yeah. visually so entertaining. So I hope we get like stuff with just like monuments and like a trident in there, some lightning bolts, like something fun but at the same time if we're really leaning into that like coming of age decom type style like scrapbook style with like yes like spider-man spider-man yeah no way home the way that movie ended i think that would be that'd be pretty cool yeah i remember loki when the loki credits would roll i'd be like what what are the objects like what's happening what (laughs) clues are we gonna get for next week i feel like specifically like the decom legacy of it all so much of this journey is going to be watching these children grow up in a way that is like both reminiscent of and hopefully hopefully meaningfully different from what we've seen with previous generations of disney children and young talented actors who have gone through this company and the system but i would really like probably i guess at the end of the series to actually get the decom three minutes of post-credits bloopers of these <gasps> kids being kids um, as they as they make the show. Um, that would be amazing. That's oh very my god! Um, yeah, the kids being kids. The real joy of this process is that we weren't like super sentient beings yet when Harry Potter started. So I don't really feel like we partook in this, but now we get to watch these kids like grow up, and it's gonna be like really special and also scary because we want to take care of them and the internet is a scary place but it mostly is just so special and exciting i will i definitely need to see like behind the scenes footage of walker training with riptide because like becky keeps dropping like little tidbits of like how much of a joy it is to watch and like i remember the first time i saw like tom holland doing like backflips on like a gym mat in like a cgi warehouse and everything and so i want to see like the progression of walker like first using a sword to like at a certain point you get to just be a master with that kind of stuff like sebastian stan his knife training for winter soldier in captain america the winter soldier right behind me like it's (laughs) insane like he's like military level by the end of that movie in real life because his training was so like rigorous and not to say Walker is going to be like trained like a soldier or anything, but you got it envision. He's probably going to be like pretty clever with it by the time season one's over. 
Oh my god. The amount of fan videos I've watched of Kit training Jesper Fahi from Shadow and Bone training his gun flips in real life because the second he got past, he was like, I'm gonna learn how to like do crazy gun tricks. Yeah, yeah. Seeing the actors be like so joyful and so invested is like one of the best parts about watching franchise adaptations. Cause you're like, oh my god, these people are just as excited about it as I am. Yeah. And we're all just so excited. Yeah. We all get to participate. Let's take a short break and then we will come back with a few more questions and discussion points uh, to talk about the pilot. All right, welcome back. So we all agree you drool in your sleep hits and then the credits <laughs> roll out. Let's use this as an opportunity to talk about music. It has long been stated by Carter and I that we wish that the soundtrack would be nothing but early 2000s bangers. Hilary Duff is mentioned in the series. <laughs> Obviously, Fall Out Boy is crucial. We've made many a Percy Jackson playlist in our day, but the teaser certainly offered a more fantasy series orchestral underscoring vibe. So what do we, what do we think predictions wise, desires wise will be happening music for the series? Well, I'll say that anytime I read books now, I, and this is again, me needing a lot of stimulants because of our, our Gen Z brains. I always <laughs> listen to film scores as I read. And the one thing I want more than anything, and this is down the line, and it will never happen because of copyright, but Hans Zimmer's time from inception to play <laughs> in like a slow-mo battle while in Percy is holding. Oh, well, I was going to say even further down the line. Battle of Manhattan is definitely on there, but I want it back for when we get to House of Hades of him holding the doors together <laughs> and like fighting off monsters in slow motion. And like the way the music is like swelling, you think like, oh my God, is Percy going to die and all that. That has been my longtime dream. Maybe Hans Zimmer will, will sell the rights to that score come 2029, if we ever even get to Heroes of Olympus, which is like even crazy to think about. But on your point of early 2000s pop punk music, would definitely love some like boys like girls in there, some Paramore. <laughs> um, is it We the Kings? Mm-hmm. And definitely Fall Out Boy. We the Kings iconically sings Check Yes, Juliet for yes. those mm -hmm. yep. who needed a reminder. <laughs> <laughs> Something I would like to drop in there for the music supervisors or other creatives on the team is that, like, yes, there's a lot to be said for specific, iconic names, sounds, voices, and songs from the early 2000s pop punk era. The other thing is that I think that even if you were to try to only do original music, there are moments in the series that I think are well underscored by lush, orchestral, thoughtful use of, you know, strings or big, gigantic computer synths. I think there are many other moments where you could have an original track that has a guitar, that has a drum four to the floor, that like, um, even if you can't get Fall Out Boy to clear the track, I think that there are a lot of moments where you were like driving or, you know, when they're, like, in the Amtrak down through the country, where, like, you need to be hearing something with crunchy guitars and drums. Like an Americana, like, road trip playlist? I'm thinking, like, you can do a pop-punk sound without anybody singing or without the song being, like, um, Sugar, We're Going Down, you know? Like, and that's <laughs> what I think people sometimes forget in this dichotomy especially nowadays when mm -hmm. like so many streaming services are clearing the like big big expensive like immediately i have 30 references and associations with the song already <laughs> needle drops is that honestly sometimes it might even be preferable for a scene if it is like a mid-level of emotional significance maybe you do not need to play the music that we all 
have like so much baggage and context for already. And that like in some of those scenes, the best music is going to be an original work of pop punk adjacent instrumentation is something that I feel and would like to see manifested at some point in the series. That's sick. That's very cool. I really like that. I I will say a quick note on music. When I was rereading the first four chapters and I shuffled my scores and soundtracks playlist, sometimes, sometimes it'll line up perfectly. And the moment when Mr. Brunner is like, oh, there is no Mrs. Dodds or or Grover says it, Joker's theme from The Dark Knight came on that like, (laughs) like, like that, like so tension filled and you're like, something's about to go down. And just it matched up perfectly. And I was like, uh, the algorithm of Apple Music's shuffle just gets me right now. <laughs> oh my gosh, I should start doing that. I feel like I don't trust my Spotify shuffle to like give me the right thing at the right moment. Like, what if it's not the right mood? It's weird to say this because I don't really care about either of these movies, but to me, two of the like best soundtrack albums to play when reading Percy Jackson are um some of the Twilight soundtracks. Paramore specific songs written for those Paramore movies. Specifically, I stopped myself is one of the songs of all time. And that yeah. for many years was lost to the sands of time because uh, the Twilight soundtracks were not on Spotify. And it's back now. Yeah. And they performed it at the Austin City Limits. Okay. That was music. That was our, that was that was our <laughs> thoughts on music. Segment over. Oh, I have a TV question. We really talked about the A plot of this episode and all of the subsequent books have built in B plots through Percy's dreams that segue us into what's going on with Luke or what's going on with the gods. We see like arguments on Mount Olympus or stuff like that, but this book doesn't really have a built in B plot. And so I wonder if the show will have a B plot or not. It doesn't have to. So does anyone have thoughts about that? I will say, based on how Disney Plus rolls out their programs, I remember I I covered The Mandalorian Season 2 pretty intensely, and I was loving Season 2 because they introduced subplots of like, okay, what's going on with the Rebel Alliance? And then there's like a Grogu story that's separate from Mando's story. And uh, I think Grief Karga, uh, Carl Weathers' character, he had his own little subplot. But those only came to light in Season Mm 2 because the audience was trained to know Mando, understand him, trust him as the main character, and then we move forward. So I do think that there might be hints of, you know, Grover's ultimate mission with Pan or Annabeth and what's going on with her. And Luke, especially, I think there'll be small undertones of of his long-term story. But I think season one, I'm expecting Percy to be like the driving force of the narrative, like 95% of the time. I think we'll only branch into subplots until season two. I think that's yes. right. They might do some interstitch shots of chaos at Camp Half-Blood. They might do some of the gods ahead of time. I personally feel like that would be a mistake. Mm. Um, and that it really benefits the engine of the story to, as you said, be like laser focused on Percy until so that like, at least in the first book, like when we meet the gods yes. for the first time, we should yes. meet them through his eyes. You know, I mm-hmm. think that that would be really cool. Or like when the things are going on in ha- Cap Half-Blood, there's something about reading the book in his perspective and feeling like so disoriented about that and like not exactly knowing how to envision what it would look like for the different cabins to be fighting each other over parents that they haven't met in most of their cases. I think that disorientation is something that maybe it would behoove the show to lean into as opposed to hold your hand into and like visualize as like a plot that takes up like 10 to 15 minutes of an episode 
Yeah. I was listening to our, our original Lightning Thief episodes because I edited them for re-releasing. Every time a new character showed up, we were like, whoa, like so shook. And like every time Percy meets a new god, because it's like the only, he like hasn't met his dad, you know? The first person he talks to is Ares and then Hades. And those are very, very, or Dionysus, I guess. Um, those are all very specifically <laughs> characterized gods and like magical beings. And every time we meet somebody new, it's like a huge event and they are very specific, like you said. And we sh it should be through Percy's eyes and we should definitely, it would, like some kind of like B-plot situation or dream sequence would definitely take away from the effect of each introduction. It's going to be such a specific first season where it's like really the only season where it's just Percy and Annabeth and Grover which is so special. Aww. This is their bonding time. Until Beckendorf takes over. <laughs> my boy, Charlie Beckendorf. I'm a big Beckendorf Woo! guy. He was one of my favorites. Oh my God, it would be so cool to see him. He hasn't been cast yet, I'm sure, but it'd be really cool to see like hints of people around the cabins who we know, like Selena. Hmm. They haven't announced the casting for Selena or Beckendorf or Katie Gardner or whatever. Oh. Lee Fletcher, <laughs> Michael Yang, Michael Yu, Michael Yu. I did not put that together that Michael Yu is like is Chinese probably the third most common Chinese American name until <laughs> like rereading the book for this podcast. I was like, wow, is that like because some Yu is like a kind of wood that you can make a bow out of or something? Like, no. <laughs> I remember meeting reading that book and being like, Michael Yu, that's representation. Wow. It was like so I did true. not shout out to Michael Yu, who is my roommate's um friend from college who has really interesting <laughs> Spotify playlists. Um, because it is the third most common Asian American name. Um. Okay. So speaking of casting, does anybody have thoughts that they would like to share on the casting? Any predictions or desires for roles that haven't been cast yet? There are still some big hitters. Go ahead, Liam. I have. Okay. I'm going to cheat here a little bit because this role's already been cast, but this has been like my dream fan casting forever. So we're just going to play what if in this scenario. Absolutely. For the longest time for... I want to say like eight years since, have you guys watched How I Met Your Mother? Okay. <laughs> I loved, loved the idea, past tense, I've moved on, of Neil Patrick <laughs> Harris as Hermes. Whoa. Specifically because if you remember the scene of when Barney Stinson in that show meets his dad and he has the moment with him and he was like trying to take the basketball hoop and he's like, what, why do you want this so bad? And it's, it's the whole symbolic nature because his dad wasn't there for him. And he's like, he's like, why do you care? And he's like, oh, you're just some lame suburban dad. He's like, well, why does that make you so angry? And then Neil Patrick Harris says, Barney goes, if you were going to be some lame suburban dad, why couldn't you have been that for me? And to me, that scene in How I Met Your Mother is Luke talking with Hermes in the cabin in that flashback that we get, I want to say, in Last Olympian. So for the longest time, I've always just been like to roll reverse that and put Neil Patrick Harris as Hermes being the godly parent, the lame suburban messenger god that Luke never had in his life, I thought would have been so perfect. That being said, Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think casting him is like genius in terms of where we're going to take that character and like the dramatic flavor he's going to bring to it. Because a lot of people see him as like, you know, cheery Lin-Manuel Miranda who does like his freestyle raps and everything. And he's Alexander Hamilton, but like he has some very deep, like emotionally raw moments in that Hamilton musical that I think he's going to bring to Hermes, which I think is really cool. And that's the most passionate fan casting I've had. Unfortunately, that role is filled <laughs> outside of that. I, uh, 
I really only got short-haired Chris Hemsworth as Poseidon, which is not going to happen because <laughs> it's just not within the budget. Specifically short-haired Chris Hemsworth. Yes, like Australian Australian bodysuit like, for surfing Chris Hemsworth. No, as opposed to Norwegian Chris Hemsworth with long hair. <laughs> Literally, yes. His energy is very different. Exactly. He moves through the world differently depending on whether it's long hair or short hair. And like in that binary. <laughs> that's fair i can see that i do want to award you liam that's the first time anybody has directly word for word quoted an episode of how i met your mother on seaweed brain podcast (laughs) no one can take that away from you you that's that's me i'm the first (laughs) (laughs) carter do you have any updated casting thoughts we haven't talked about it in two years well, that was two years ago we did a fan cast episode. We Okay, yeah, that's true. We've had some, like, off-the-air conversations about who Athena is going to be. <laughs> and oh, my God. She still hasn't been announced. Oh, my God. She still hasn't been announced. As of recording. As of recording. Who could Disney get that is, like, roughly at, like, the level of hard-to-get that Lin-Manuel is hard-to-get? I have one idea. Lashana Lynch. Whoa. She's most notable for, I hate, I hate saying most notable because she's in it for five seconds, but in Doctor Strange, when she's Maria Rambo, the, the Captain Marvel variant, but she was in yeah. The Woman King this past fall. Criminally underrated. It only had like a three-week theatrical run, but it's going to get a lot of awards love, I think at least. It's tracking pretty well. And she was like my standout. She was like the third lead in it too. Uh, like that film was on the shoulders of like, I believe it's Viola Davis in the lead, but yeah. Lashana Lynch was like very, very good in it. And I mean, they're warriors, they're, uh, they're African warriors in the woman King. So I think she could play a, a Greek warrior pretty well as well. I could see that. And she has wow. the Disney connects. I, I think that's like a good choice for like the right kind of energy and also the right kind of career that would like set you up for this role to be like a good and interesting choice for you to have and for the audience to experience. I like that. Funny you should mention The Woman King because my pipe dream casting for Athena recently has been Viola Davis. I mean, okay. oh. <laughs> gonna swing for the fences and be like, we're getting like an Oscar winner in here, which I guess technically yeah. Lynn is an Oscar winner as well. But does he not have an EGOT yet? He does. I he think doesn't. he does. But like, wait, no, wait, no, he didn't get the Oscar. <laughs> Did he? Because um, Encanto didn't. Didn't win something from Moana? We're going to have to research Google. this. Does Lin-Manuel Miranda have EGOT? Did he not hasn't EGOT. Won. He's lost both times. 2022. Song. Did not EGOT. Okay, that's what I yeah. thought. That's what I thought. He lost to Billie Eilish, Yes. Right? This oh, most recent time yeah. he lost to Billie Eilish, even though, and this was probably his best shot for Encanto. Haven't we all lost to Billie Eilish? <laughs> <laughs> the other pick that I felt was like more more gettable than Viola Davis, let's say, who is like <laughs> one of the most sought after actresses in Hollywood, was Kirby Hall Baptiste. What was I watching? I was watching, I think it was Sandman. An energy that is halfway between what she was giving in as Death, which I thought was like an exquisite performance, oh, and she's also so good her performance in The Good Place as that like character who's like a neuroscientist who like is dating Chidi in some of the versions of Mm -hmm. the afterlife. I feel like somewhere between those things, like I can, I'm I'm in my head piecing together all the ingredients for like a really good Athena performance. And she's always working. She could do it. Danai is also (laughs) too famous, but you know, also would kill it as Athena. That's a Shakespearean actor. She would eat. I literally saw her (laughs) play King Richard in Shakespeare in the park. It was so cool. It was so cool. I could have touched her. I didn't, 
because I was a respectful <laughs> audience member, but I could have. Um, we are wrapping up here. Does anybody have final thoughts about casting, technical elements, plot, anything that they didn't get out earlier, things they want to see or have changed in the plot of these first four chapters of The Lightning Thief? I will say, we talked about post credit scenes very briefly. I think the Luke turn should be a post credit scene. I think we should end season one on the highest of highs. Everyone thinks it's all good. Percy's like, oh yeah, like where's Luke? And they're like, oh, he's just, I think he's just in his cabin or whatever. He's like, oh, okay, whatever. Like I'll catch up with him later. And then like that later is after the credits roll. He goes over, he's like doing his whole thing. Oh, backbiter. Like it's uh, what is it? Celestial yeah. bronze. Part celestial right? bronze, part regular metal. Yeah. And then he's just like, I'm, I'm bad now. Like I'm, I, I tried to screw you over with the shoes or like he doesn't reveal everything, but he's like very subtle about it. And I, maybe he maybe he drops the name like if he drops like Kronos and like that's a big deal because it says in the first four chapters like, oh, is that the minute? And then Sally's like, don't say it out loud. Names have power. Like, be careful if they make that a big deal and just like avoid saying it explicitly. And then like the head honcho at camp says it and then he just dips Princess Andromeda like I think that'd be a pretty cool way to end season one. I have oh my chills. god, I'm freaking out. I see the vision because it is like, you're right, like there's so little that happens after that in the book. Yeah. Oh my god. I feel like they should like give it meat. It should be like five to seven minute long scene, but I do think the after the credits thing is sickening and it makes so much sense. <laughs> like totally how you experience it. Yeah. Charlie is going to eat as Luke. I am so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited for him. He's going to do an amazing job. I like want to gatekeep him as an actor so much <laughs> because he's like the only one of like the main kids that isn't like being treated like this like household name yet. Like uh Leah Jeffries had mm-hmm. Beast this past summer. Walker had like secret headquarters. He had so much stuff. Ariane Simhadri had Cheaper by the Dozen on Disney Plus. And Charlie Bushnell is just like this like relative, like unknown name right now. After people see him as Luke, if he just does <laughs> what this character is capable of from a page perspective on screen, like he's going to be a massive, massive name. And uh, I don't mean that literally. I'm not like, I'm just saying this is the receipt. <laughs> this is the podcast where I go. You should have bought your Charlie Bushnell stock right now in January 2023 before it's yeah, through the roof. Yeah, you're a stand right now, everybody. Charlie Bushnell stand. Amen. He is also, he. what is he, 17, 18 as an actor? I could check, but like, you know that like he's a little bit older and they knew full well where this character has to go in this franchise, which means that they mm-hmm. probably put him through the freaking ringer during auditions they probably made him give some taste of what luke is going to be in five years or 10 years which means you know he can do it (laughs) he's only going to get better all of them are only going to become better actors as they get older and as the material gets more complicated and as the tone gets more serious too because like that's that's the beauty of like the harry potter movies like i know harry potter nowadays unfortunately is like the ugly stepchild the movies are done really well And one thing I love about the movies, too, is the first two, the Chris Columbus directed ones, they're children's movies. Like, they're all nice and bubbly, like, oh, rats, we got a giant snake in the the school. We got (laughs) to make sure it doesn't stop and paralyze anyone. And then it gets, like, super serious once they get to Prisoner of Azkaban and, like, the tone. It, It feels like, okay, if you were a kid watching this and you were, like, 10... Now you might be 13, 14, and we can make it a little bit more PG-13. That's what I want it to be when we get to, like, Titan's Curse. Like, I want it to feel not, like, crazy serious, but, like, 
you know, we can up the maturity level a little bit because the audience has consequently also matured. That was also the movie where Daniel Radcliffe was like, I am an actor. When he was shooting Prisoner of Azkaban. He stepped up. They had Alfonso Cuaron come on and direct Daniel Radcliffe Mm -hmm. as he's trying to become an actor. Surrounded by Gary Oldman and and literally Alan Rickman in that scene in the Shrieking Shack. And Daniel Radcliffe was like, I was so nervous because at that point I was like, I'm a real actor and like these are real actors and like I have to just like slay this scene for Alfonso. And that's going to be Walker in the Titans curse. Like (laughs) he's going to be like, I'm a real actor. Like whoever's playing Talia, like I have to act with her or Atlas. Atlas is going to be good. And um, Tantalus too. There's going to be like some iconic actors. Okay. Wow. I'm so excited. We could keep talking for eight hours about this and we will because we're doing it episodes. (laughs) Oh, I had one more thing. This was very minute, but this was the one thing I like, in my skim rereading of these first four chapters today, pulled on page nine. Percy gets really angry because he has like, you know, he has emotional regulation issues. He's a 12-year-old boy and he's like a quote-unquote troubled kid, you know, and he describes himself getting so angry that a wave roars in his ears and he blacks out as he's like dunking Nazi Boba Fett. And I think it'd be super cool if we got throughout the series that audio of a wave like going like swarming like it's barreling over you as Percy is like activating his powers or he's about to black out and then it's like silence and then he you know shows back up in that like quiet almost like Logan Lerman beating people up in Perks of Being a Wallflower when it goes totally quiet and yeah, he just decks everybody in the cafeteria that would be really cool <laughs> wow that's the vision yeah oh my god I'm literally so excited this episode has like reinvigorated not that it needed reinvigorating but reinvigorated by excitement for the show thank you so much for joining us liam this is like an exclusive interview with a professional professionally (laughs) covering percy jackson oh man well thank you for that for that compliment and honestly thank you guys for having me on like this is really cool because it's it's just the first of like many times just the general public is going to talk about Percy Jackson because you know production's still ongoing like we still have like a couple more weeks till till they stop rolling cameras and then like eight months of post-production like this is a, a long journey and it's uh it's cool to be at kind of the genesis of it wow I'm so grateful to be alive <laughs> this is i remember this is how i felt during the pandemic about like all the content marvel was putting out i'm like this is what i'm living for right now like this is what is getting me through Mm -hmm. the next six months of my life and now it's the percy jackson show so feeling grateful for you rick and all those over at disney liam will you tell people where they can find you on the internet yeah uh all socials is at liam t crowley uh even though i don't use my middle initial professionally it's in my usernames <laughs> um so yeah twitter instagram and tiktok um the percy jackson community is genuinely my favorite like anytime i put out an article y'all are super supportive and that means a lot so keep supporting and uh i'll keep appreciating it the logan lerman interview is already out go rewatch it if you haven't it's really special to me we will post it ourselves <sighs> thank you guys i, I appreciate that <laughs> Beyond that, I'm trying to think of anything Percy Jackson related I have coming out. You know what? I'll I'll drop this now so I can be held accountable. Uh, when production wraps, I'm going to do a lengthy timeline article piece chronicling like the start of casting to when they wrap production. It's been yeah. in my head for a while, and I haven't wanted to like say it out loud because I don't want to commit to it because it's going to be like 2,000 words long. Someone has but to. <laughs> it's out there now. It's out there now. So that'll be. 
something that I'm sure I'll continue to add to as more tidbits come out. But uh, official Percy Jackson production timeline article by the end of this month. Okay, love that. That's a problem. That would be super helpful for us <laughs> and I'm sure many others. We have one final question for you before you leave. Again, a question we used to ask every single one of our guests until we fell into the dirge of Trials of Apollo. Do you believe that Persebeth is the greatest love story ever told? Ever? Ever. <laughs> in in all <laughs> mediums, like we're going across ever. TV, musicals, ever. 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 Well, my mind's drawing a blank when I try to think of something to combat it. So <laughs> I, think, I think by default, it, it's currently the champion in my head, but... By default, the best way to win. <laughs> There's, I mean, Doctor Doofenshmirtz. <laughs> once we see it in live action, that could really cement it. I'll, I'll say, I'll say, it's the greatest love story ever told. We did not even bully our special guest into that answer, you guys. That was authentic, <laughs> organic. We didn't even tell him the question beforehand. So, just goes to show, uh, this podcast continues to. <laughs> uh, fulfill its mission. All right. Next week, y'all, we're going to, I promise, I promise, <laughs> talk about The Tower of Nero. As of today, I just finished reading the book. So we are going to finish talking about it so that we're all caught up before the sun and the star comes out. We're going to do a whole Solangelo like recap episode, perhaps a timeline, um, now that you've inspired us before the book comes out so that we can talk about the book. <laughs> you know, a handful of chapters at a time um, as we're all reading it together. And then we will be back to finish our eight episode spree on the Disney Plus show. So thank you again, Liam, for being here. Thank you for everybody who is still listening to this. And we will see you guys next time. Goodbye. Bye all. <laughs> <laughs>